Original content. Content. Compelling discussions. Audio on demand. This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingle, Taylor Moore, Jay Darden, Congressman Garrett Gray, Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark, Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is the Clay Young Show. Thanks, Neil. Welcome back. This is the Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. And on the Apple Podcast app. How's it going, folks? Hopefully you are enjoying your morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on where you are listening. Have a fantastic one in store for you today. Do you remember Court TV? Remember Court TV during the O.J. Simpson trial? It was the place you went to watch what was happening during the trial every day. And for a lot of people during the day, that's all they watched. I didn't have as much open time during the day to be able to do it. But when there was a window or if you were at lunch someplace with a television, that was likely on. Well, Court TV has returned. And one of the offerings is OJ 25, a true crime series that takes a look at the OJ Simpson trial 25 years later. Well, if we're going to talk about this. One of the best people to talk with about this is Detective Tom Lang, retired LAPD detective who was lead investigator, along with his partner Phil Van Adder, in the Simpson trial in the murder investigation. And subsequently, he was a participant for the prosecution in the trial. He was interviewed, as you would imagine, by both the prosecution and the defense. He appears in a couple of episodes of OJ 25, I suspect he's going to be in many, many more of them. As you know, Tom is also the author of the book Evidence Dismissed, which is a great read, the definitive book on the investigation into those murders. You will learn things that I know you have not heard before. Guaranteed. So you can check out Evidence Dismissed. And no, I'm not getting anything for plugging his book except helping people getting, gain some enlightenment about this trial. So we'll talk with Tom about that. And then I'm going to mention to you at the end of the show after the interview, stick around for some info on our guest for next week. We're going to do a, actually a couple of interviews next week. But one in particular is someone you know, and I'll reference uh, some of that just a bit in the closing segment of the show. Uh, it, but it's, it's something that I was surprised about. I had a conversation with this person yesterday, and they shared something with me that it was just unbelievable. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the closing segment of the show. But Court TV is back, and OJ25 will take you back. Podcast225.com. This is Jeff LaDuff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly LaDuff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 
313-913-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. The issues, the policies, the people. This is The Clay Young Show. Back with retired Los Angeles Police Department Detective Tom Lang, who's been on the show before. Tom is the author of the book Evidence Dismissed. It is, in my opinion, the definitive book on the O.J. Simpson murder trial and everything that happened after the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. Well, Tom is here because he's involved in something else. Court TV. Remember Court TV? Court TV was really the go-to for people who wanted to know what was happening with the O.J. Simpson trial. They were in the courtroom every day, and then they just kind of went away. Where they're back with an online streaming, uh, really they've got a a number of shows, but the feature on there is a show called O.J. 25. It is a look back 25 years ago at the entire trial in chronological order. Every Thursday, they're going to encapsulate a week of court activity in a documentary. It's hosted by Roger Kosick, who's a former Los Angeles prosecutor and legal analyst. And the show features interviews with members of the Dream Team, Alan Dershowitz, F. Lee Bailey, and Sean Holly. Former LAPD detectives Ron Sh- or LAPD detective Mark Furman, LAPD officer Ron Ship, and Detective Tom Lang, lead investigator in the case, is also involved, as well as that of Ron Goldman, uh, his father rather, uh, Fred Goldman, and his sister Kim Golden. Long introduction, but Tom is here. Hey, Tom, how are you, bud? Hey, good, Dick. Clay, how you been? I had to pack all of that in, so I didn't have to go back to it. Good job. <laughs> so, uh, when did you first find out about OJ Twenty Five? Well, I got a call last. Um, I think it was September, or October, and I wasn't even aware that uh, Court TV had resurrected itself, but they did, and they wanted to kick off twenty twenty with a big show. And this is a so they they pitched this thirty seven week special. Uh, like you said, the one hour for one week of trial, because the trial lasted 37 weeks. So I got a call, and they wanted me to get involved with it. And initially, I didn't want to do that, because at this point, everyone seems to have their own agendas. And their agendas never equal the truth of what really occurred. They were always coming from left field somewhere, and so I turned them down, and then they kept calling. And I knew the 25th anniversary of the trial was coming up, and... And uh, finally, I spoke with the CEO there and, and someone else, another uh, supervising uh, producer, and they assured me that this was on the level. They weren't going to play games with it. They weren't going to do a lot of uh, nonsensical editing, that they didn't have their own agenda. They just wanted to retell the trial as it happened. And so they're playing these old videos of the trial, followed by, as you said a bit ago, 
the actual people who were testifying and, and up-to-date uh, interviews regarding uh, what, what occurred during the trial at that time. And uh, so far, I, I have to say that I think they've done a pretty good job. I think it's been pretty even, pretty objective. Uh, they let people talk, and, and they're answering maybe a lot of questions for people who are just turning in for the first time. It's interesting to think about 25 years later how much public opinion has shifted on the Simpson trial and, and the aftermath. I think more people are, especially people of color, are willing to acknowledge now their belief that he's guilty than 25 years ago. What do you think has contributed to that the most? Well, I think time is one thing. I mean, after a while, things calm down, the rhetoric calms down, and and people take another look at the evidence, and then they listen a little closer, and they're probably not quite as personally involved, regardless of what side they're on, one way or the other. I think that they maybe are taking a closer look and saying, well, you know, maybe uh, I was a little, little too much emotion before, uh, and this is a new generation of something else. You've got a new generation of folks now out there that weren't even born back then that have heard about this trial, and and uh, now they're, they're starting to look at it more objectively. And so time, you know, it, it, more... Uh, the more things change, and and I think people are a little more looking at it, a little more uh, sober, uh, a little more sober, sober in thoughts than they than they perhaps had uh, 25 years ago. So when you sat down with them, and 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 full disclosure, Tom and I were having a conversation last week, and he mentioned this, and I had seen part of the episode with Ron Ship, so I went online, I think Saturday, pulled it up, watched all five, and. I really enjoyed it. It wasn't as dramatic as the ESPN one, and I mean that in a good way. It was just kind of down-the-middle journalistic storytelling. So after you watched the first one, before you were really in, what was your impression? Uh, that they were, in fact, uh, objective. Um, people now, after all of these years, get to say perhaps what they wanted to say back then and didn't have an opportunity or perhaps they're looking at things a little differently now that the years have passed. Uh, there's probably a little more personal introspection than, than, than we had back then. Um, it's it, the, the interviews today are, are more interesting because, again, uh, people are, I think, being more objective looking at the whole thing, regardless of what side they fell on. Well, you know, everybody knows where I am on this. I think he did it. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, someone told me years ago, when all else fails, you go with the evidence. Right. The evidence is the one thing that hasn't changed. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's nothing, everything Everything fits. Most cases don't have anything like that. Uh, but everything fit, and it hasn't changed from day one. It's, nothing has changed. It's the same evidence then there is today. And, and then you take a look at that and say, well, where's... Uh, Where's something here that doesn't fit? Where's a, where's a, a reasonable uh, explanation for another suspect or another motive or anything else? It just it just doesn't exist. Well, F. Lee Bailey admits in the first five episodes that it was definitely their objective to just <clears throat> to blame the police. Yeah, and so well, that's that's not a bad uh, tactic, and uh, because you know cops aren't always that popular with people. They're they're an authority uh, figure usually, and the only interaction people have with cops usually they get stopped for a ticket, or, or they're the victim of a crime, or the 
the cop, uh, you know, he's he's uh, got a had bad day and he makes a comment and uh, so you know, cops aren't real uh, aren't real uh, uh, popular with a lot of people, and so it's easy to make them a target. And frankly, that's that's not bad for the defense to do that because the cop should be put under a microphone, like under a microscope, as as far as to what they do. Uh, because it's a test for them. Do you believe us or don't you? And here it is. So there's nothing wrong with putting them to it, but you cross the line when you start to lie about things and you make things up. Right. And you did see some of that in the Simpson case. If you're going to call a cop a racist, if you're going to say he plants evidence, if you're going to say he lies, you have to lay out that evidence and, and show the court what your evidence is. Now, to this day, Alan Dershowitz claims that my partner, my late partner, Phil Van Adder, planted blood evidence on the socks. Well, he didn't. He couldn't have. It would have been an impossibility, and there's no evidence to show that he did. Yet no one has ever confronted Alan Dershowitz with that. And I see him on stuff still today where he's making the same claims, and no one still confronts him. It's just hard to believe. That's That's a pretty serious charge to say cops plant blood evidence at a murder case with nothing to back it up. Well, and again, this, this type of a thing still goes on. Now, in this uh, OJ-25 thing, I'm able to address that. That's right. So Tom is able to address it. So just put this in context for you. And this, this was really one of the best moments of reading Evidence Dismissed. We've been hearing for 25 years and during the trial about how blood was planted how O.J.'s blood was planted inside the Bronco. O.J.'s blood was planted uh, at his house and, and at, at Nicole's house, that he couldn't have left all of that blood. And Cochran spun that yarn. Well, here's the thing. When the sun comes up on the Monday after the murders, it is clear that O.J. has blood inside of his Bronco. It is clear that there are blood droplets leading into his house. Officers at his house see that. It's documented. It's marked. The LAPD didn't take his blood until like 1231 o'clock the next day. So somebody explain to me how you can plant blood you didn't have. Yeah. Well, and you got to address scene. that. Yeah. It's the same at the crime. The blood was at the crime scene when Simpson is back in Chicago. That's right. So, so how does that work? <laughs> I mean, it's an impossibility to begin with. But what Dershowitz is claiming is that the blood later was poured on the socks right. by Van Adder. And then the day that the, the jury came back, their chief uh, defense investigator came out and said, well, the blood was planted, but it was planted by personnel from the lab. So, I mean, they can't even get their story straight who they think planted blood. And there's no evidence to show that either one happened. It's 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 unbelievable. And you know, the other thing I noticed from this was this documentary doesn't do Marsha Clark any favors. At least not in the no, first five episodes. She, yeah, she 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 doesn't. Uh, she's not part of it for no, whatever she, she, reason. She, she isn't. But they're they're not flattering to her with what they say. No, well, because there was were things that perhaps weren't done the way they should have been. I mean, there was a lot of evidence that wasn't presented. And I've always thought you never have too much evidence at a murder. How can you have too much? We don't want to put this in. We don't want to put that in. I think she played some games with that and uh, maybe paid the price. The second episode features the interview or the, the exchange between Ron Shipp, former LAPD officer, and Carl Douglas, 
a fairly annoying attorney who was on the dream team. Your thoughts about that? Well, he just he just said late Carlotti is a little annoying, but uh, <laughs> Carol is on a mission, and you know it's fine to cross examine cops, former cops, and and fine with Ron Ship. You cross examine them, but you don't get to the point where you're pushing a lie. You're pushing things that aren't true. Let the man speak. That's why he's on the stand. Uh, they were afraid of Ron Ship because Ron Ship came out and just opened up and told them the the exact truth of what his, his uh, relationship was with Simpson and what he felt and what he found when he talked to Nicole and when Simpson talked to him. He just told them the, the, the exact truth of what, what occurred, and they feared that, and so you have to attack that. And Carl tried to attack him every way possible, even to the point that he said, well, he had a drinking problem, he may have lied, he may have misrepresented something. Uh, some of that is fine, except sometimes you can push a little too far. And what, what Ron Shipp testified to is exactly the truth. He, Douglas even, he did ask him in one of the cross-examination exchanges, he said, didn't you tell someone that if O.J. was out of the way, you could have a shot at Nicole? I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. That's cheap shot. That's cheap shots. But sometimes people get impressed with that, and that's what they were hoping for. Uh, again, this is another thing about cameras in the courtroom. You, with every attorney is going to play to those cameras, and you're not going to get a true story. Everybody's playing games. That's, that's one argument that you, why you should not have cameras in the courtroom. It affects testimony, and this type of thing gets out, and that's all you see in the media. And it's just not what really happened. So we, the, the, you've talked about this. You've done lectures around the country. Obviously, I mentioned the book Evidence Dismissed. You know, watching this again now, I'm sure your emotion is annoyance, maybe not as bad as it was 25 years ago. But talk me through just kind of what you're thinking, the, the emotional ride you're on as you watch this stuff. Well, I'm not on an emotional ride as much as my wife, <laughs> and you know her. I do know her. <laughs> uh, so that's that's one thing, and I and I can understand that. I I take these things a little differently, but I've always believed that people and everybody should know what really happened. Yeah, you don't have to lie. You don't have to make stuff up. This is what happened. This is what was documented. When someone comes in and try to purposely change that, it just kind of pisses me off. And I, I, it's, let's just tell the truth. Let's let uh, let everything fall where it may. Right. But I want this the truth out, the facts of the evidence, what it is. But you, nobody's going to know that until you put it out there. And Marsha really didn't put a lot of it out there that might sway a few people in a different direction. So Mark Furman, as I referenced in the open, is in this as well. And there was an interesting part of I think episode four where he referenced another officer who was at the scene when they initially got there, and he's questioning that officer's remembrance of what went on, even so much as to say, you see, he won't be interviewed for this documentary. I wonder why that is. Did you notice that, and what's the story behind that? Well, he's speaking of Ron, Ron Phillips, and uh, Ron I've known a long time. He was, he was uh, Furman's supervisor. Uh, the man does have uh, a couple of uh, medical issues, um, but he just, he's had it. He's, he's had a, a belly full of this whole thing, like many people, and I don't blame him. He's a good cop. He's just trying to do his job. 
and he did his job very well overall. Uh, and he just doesn't want any part of it. And and frankly, I can't say that I blame him. I don't know what Fer- Furman went uh, went to him, and he wants him to uh, he wants Ron to back up anything Furman has to say about what he thought he may have seen at the crime scene about a uh, supposed. Uh, uh, blood transfer, a fingerprint, bloody fingerprint transfer on the gate that nobody else saw right. during this thing. And then the gate was printed. We had four print texts there. They made 17 latent lifts. They printed the gate and everything else. They were there for, for several hours, all four of them were, and they never saw it. Uh, he's, he's saying there were things at the crime scene uh, that uh, he wasn't backed up on. Well, no one else ever saw any of this stuff. Even Marcia Clark in her book mentions that, that when Furman took her in a walkthrough, he never pointed any of these things out either. And it just it just came up in his, in his crime scene notes as another one, a possible print. Well, why did he tell somebody about it? If it's a possible, then all, all of a sudden it became a definite print at the crime scene. Well, you tell somebody, if you see a bloody fingerprint at a crime scene, that's big stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got your suspect. If you got a bloody, if you got a bloody print, You've got a suspect. And why wouldn't you mention that to anybody instead of burying it in your notes somewhere? Makes no sense. I just, I can't, I can't explain him. I mean, he was the hook that Cochran hung this case on when they found yeah. out about that tape. And they used him to enforce the, the narrative that they were trying to spin about the right. LAPD. So for him to try to blame somebody else now, is like, I just shake my head at that. Well, that's that's who he is, and uh, he, he gets a guy with his pants down around his ankles, and he gets caught at it, and he can he points fingers in every direction but his own. Uh, you know, if you screw up, you screw up. Admit it and move on. Everybody screws up, mm-hmm. okay. And if you over overload it, if you're too arrogant, if you think you know everything and you don't, and you look at his notes, they're all supposition. If you're a, a crime scene at a crime scene and you're a homicide cop and and you're uh, writing evidence down in your observations, you never use supposition. Right. Well, he used the supposition all the way through, much as he did for this so-called uh, bloody fingerprint, which was no nothing more than just a bloody smudge. And that's what the, the tech saw, and that's what it was. But he sticks to his tail and, uh, about, uh, about seeing that and other things, and he expects people to back him up. Well, they're not going to do that because they didn't see those things. And, you know, he obviously was, was the person responsible for finding the glove at Rockingham. Did, did he see the initial glove at Nicole's place, too? Yeah, no, he was at, uh, when he got called out, he went to Nicole's place. Now, that's, I have nothing wrong with what he did there. Sure. He, did, he did his job. Yeah. He was interviewing Cato Kalin. Cato Kalin hears a noise uh, behind his bungalow, and, and following the interview, Furman goes behind the bungalow to see what the noise might have been. And he finds the glove. Well, it, it makes sense if you if you follow that very narrow path where the uh, glove was found. There's a big air conditioning unit right in front of it, leading towards the rear of the bungalow, which was a, a dump area that Simpson used on his property. If you go back there, there's nothing but old tires and a, there's an old wheelbarrow and there's junk and everything else in that one little area. My feeling is he was going to go back there and try to dump these the bloody clothing, the gloves, and anything else that he may have had 
dumped him in the back there temporarily because he's got a limo waiting for him to take him to the airport to go to Chicago. So he wants to temporarily get rid of any evidence he may have had, and in doing so, it's very dark back there. He runs into this air conditioning unit, and that's what Cato Cato heard uh, was this thumping, and at that point, he probably dropped the glove inadvertently, didn't know it, and then had to come back out. He never reached that little area that's to the rear of that bungalow where we wanted to dump this stuff. So all of that fits, and Furman did the right thing in following up and finding the glove. But after that, I mean, things, you just you don't fill in the blanks with supposition, and, and that's what he did. You know, so since this series is only looking at the, the trial, there isn't a whole lot of coverage about the arrest, the slow-speed chase, the interrogation, and we, you talked about this in the book. You, we've talked about this on the show before, but I want to go back for people who may not have heard that. When you are in the interrogation room, you and Detective Van Adder, and you're across the table from Simpson, take us in the room, his demeanor, uh, his, when he's responding to your questions, does he seem annoyed? Is he engaged? Take us in that room. And, and I'm asking that to set something else up. Yeah, well, he's. Uh, it was to begin with. It wasn't an interrogation. We call okay. that an interview. Okay. An interrogation is going to be a good cop, bad cop thing. Maybe you're going to bang your fist on the table. You're going to confront the person you're interviewing with with evidence or whatever else. Try to perhaps get some kind of an admission or uh, as far as his involvement. That wasn't the case here because we had nothing to confront him with. And the other thing is, you don't confront some kind of a sociopath or someone who believes that they should be in control at all times uh, with, the, with evidence that, that you don't have. You, you do what we call an interview, and what you're trying to do there is glean inconsistencies in his statements. And that's exactly what we did. There are several inconsistencies there, especially the important ones like, did you bleed at the scene, and you're bleeding the left middle finger, your left hand, uh, that's very important because we knew the suspect bled at the scene. So you get inconsistencies, and that's the point you do that. You're not going to get that if you confront someone, if you're good cop, bad cop, and you say that they, you know, you're trying to play, uh, play like they do on television. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Well, with the inconsistencies, these should have been used at trial, and they never were. Uh, he's, if he's going to think that he can take over the interview and direct, you allow that. Because all it, all it takes for him is to say, hey, you guys are accusing me of something I had nothing to do with. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm out of here. He invokes, and he's gone. You lose everything. That's just the beginning of this. We also needed his cooperation after because we are going to go back to the Rockingham location and search it. We had a search warrant. And so I'm thinking after the interview, I said, listen, we've got a warrant for your place. We're going to go back there, and we're going to search it. Would you mind going along with us and helping me out? Well, now, he's not going to say that if I'm accusing him of a murder or if I'm getting the tough guy with him, good cop, bad cop, or whatever. Right. He's not going to cooperate. But now he thinks that, you know, we're buddies. We're gonna, he's going to say anything he wants and do anything he can do, and it's, it's going to pass. So we go back to the Rockingham location, and he walks around with me pointing stuff out. We go into his closet. He's got all these clothes and everything else, and I say, could you show me what you were wearing last night, the night of the murder. So he points to a couple of things there, and, you know, we're not going to see a, a pile of bloody clothing in there, obviously. Right, right, right. So he points out a few things, and I said, well, what kind of shoes were you wearing? 
knowing that we had bloody footwear impressions of the suspect's shoes at the crime scene. So he points to a, a pair of tennis shoes there uh, on, on the floor, and I pick them up and I look at them and I turn them over to see if they even come close to the impressions we have at the scene. Well, they don't, but I'm going to keep them anyway. And I said, O.J., you mind if I keep your shoes? He said, oh, you can have them. You can take anything you want. I said, now, these are your shoes? He says, yeah. And I said, when, when, when did you wear them last? He said, well, well last night. I, these are the ones they wore last night. Okay, thank you, and we go on. Now, we've got his cooperation. Well, I took those shoes to size his footwear impressions by his own admission. They were size 12. We have size 12 at the crime scene. So by his own admission, this is inculpatory evidence. If it was size 10, it would be exculpatory. It wouldn't be him at all. But we, that's why we took the shoes. Now, I wouldn't have got that had I been a hard ass at some, at some interrogation with this guy. So he thinks he's a part of all of this. He's going along with it. This is what you do with someone who is a sociopath. If he wants to think he's taken over, let him. You're going to get a lot more information. All of these things could have been used at trial, and they weren't. Which still to this day, it... I mean, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There was so much more evidence. And, you know, I hate to, to deviate, but I have to tell, tell everybody about the, the witness at the airport. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's another one. Uh, at the time of the, uh, the night of the murder, Simpson, of course, took a limo to LAX. He's going to American Airlines. It's just after 11 p.m., and he got dropped off at the upper level at LAX at American Airlines. Uh, by the uh, limo. So they pull up in front, and it's hardly anyone around because it's late in a Sunday night, and the flights are going out, so there's not a whole lot of people and hardly any traffic. Simpson jumps out, and the red cap comes out of the out of the terminal, and the chauffeur gets out, and they start emptying the limousine. And behind the limo is a small sports car with a guy sitting in it, waiting for his wife, who happens to work at the counter at American Airlines. He checks his watch. She's running a little late. He looks over his shoulder, didn't see anything. And he looks up back at the limo, and he sees Simpson, and he recognizes him. The red cap and the chauffeur start taking Simpson's luggage, golf clubs, a couple other things, on into the terminal. And he sees Simpson lay back. And on the entrance to the American Airlines, there are two trash containers, one on either side of the entrance. They're about 44, 46 inches high. They're flat on top with four, four-sided openings on both sides. Well, on the top of the trash container is a small half-moon-shaped travel bag. Now, this is the one that Simpson would not allow Cato Kalin to right. pick up and put into the limo at the right. Rockingham house. He was guarding. He said, no, I'll take care of that. Don't do anything with it. Well, the same half-moon-shaped bag is on top of the trash container, and he's removing items from it and stuffing them down into the trash container located to the left of the entrance. Well, he sees all of this, and, of course, the bodies haven't been found. No one knows what's happened yet. And when he's through putting whatever he put in the trash can, Simpson zips his little bag up, picks it up, and walks out inside. He doesn't think any more of it. The wife comes out, and he goes home. Well, the next day he's at work. And uh, he's an architect, and he hears on the radio that about the murders and that uh, the police are trying to contact Simpson. He's possibly a suspect, this, that, and the other. Well, he's, he's listening to the report, and the people reporting this say that uh, Simpson was uh, 
the, the one of the victim's mothers was interviewed, and she said that she last saw her daughter about, this is Judith Brown, uh, Nicole's mother, last saw her daughter about 10.30 the night before, so our witness is thinking, well, if it's about 10.30 there, I saw him just after 11 at the airport, he couldn't be a suspect. He couldn't have done this. So this guy calls the defense, talks to Bill Pavlik, who's the chief investigator for the defense. Pavlik says, fine, listen, thank you for the information. Uh, we'll get back to you. Well, he never does, for obvious reasons. So the trial starts at about eight, it's almost nine months later. He's watching the trial, this witness is, and, he, and he's listening to this testimony, and he's saying that he finds out that the real time that Nicole was last alive is about 9.37 p.m. because we pulled phone records. And we know what time Judith had talked to Nicole because of these phone records. Well, so it was like, I think it was like 9, 9.42 or something the, the night before. So that was the time was off. Well, this would have put, it's given Simpson plenty of time to get to the airport. So he calls me at the break in court one day, and he gives me this, this information. I say, this is, uh, listen, I want to formally interview you. This is important. Can we talk to you now? He says, fine. I said, well, you, would you do this? Are you near the airport? He said, yeah, I work not too far from the airport. Would you meet us at American Airlines? He said he would, and so he did, and I ran out there with a couple of guys and a, and a photographer, and I had him do a, a little walkthrough and took photographs and everything else. Come to find out these two trash containers are picked up three times a day, and there's two dumps, daily dumps, areas, that, landfills, where that trash would have gone to. Now, this is nine months later. There's very little chance that you're going to find anything. There were no cameras out there or anything else to corroborate what he said, but we did the background, like I said, on the containers. There's no way we'd ever find this stuff, but this is a good, reliable witness. To this day, people are saying, what happened to the Bruno Mollies? What happened to the murder weapon? How about bloody clothes? Well, how about this? You know, he stuck those, something was in that container he wanted to get rid of. So we got to take all this to Marcia, and she doesn't want to put it on. She says it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, and we can't corroborate it, and I'm saying, so what? This is a witness that I think we really want to put on. He's, he's no background on him, and he's not a bad guy. He's not a criminal. Uh, this is a very reliable witness. There's a lot of credibility, and she never put him on. I think that was a big, big mistake. Because, again, to this day, people want to know what happened to all this stuff. I still can't believe she didn't put this guy on the witness stand. No? I, I still can't believe it. I get the lady that, and the I forget her name now, it, it eludes me, who took money from hard copy, who yeah. said she ran into him as he was leaving Nicole's place, and Marsha didn't do it because she says she's going to be tainted because she took money. I don't know, man. I probably still would have put her up there. To no, I would put her on because we can. Co there's some cooperation with that because there were other people that saw him, and the timeline fits. She's to this day feels terrible at uh, about that whole situation, uh, but I would have put her on. People are imperfect. People do things. You know, if you think this. This is a big conspiracy, and we made all this stuff up, and we planted evidence, and, and we, we own all these witnesses, and, and all these cops are together planning up. It's total nonsense. No one's going to believe all that stuff, so I would have put her on in a minute. Think about this. 
there was a witness who saw him who, or, who, or who believes she saw him speeding away from Nicole Brown's house just right. after the murders would have happened. Then there is a witness who sees him that same night shoving things out of the half moon sized bag into the trash and neither one of them were called into court. Yeah, here's a guy walking his dogs one night, and he hears a lot of noise, and he goes out, and he sees this white-looking uh, car that appears to be something like a Bronco fleeing the scene. I mean, this is uh, right after he hears the hollering from, the, from that area about, hey, hey, this type of thing, and some kind of a scuffle, perhaps, and he goes out to the mouth of the alley, and he, he sees this uh, car pull out on Dorothy and fly out on the street, and it's a white car that appears to be a Bronco. Mm. Well, who do we think that is? Later on, we do a, a drive-through, and it the most it took us was four and a half minutes drive time to get from at that time of night on a Sunday night around ten thirty. It took us a little over four minutes to get from Bundy to Rockingham, and we were not speeding. We did it three different ways, so four and a half minutes maximum time to get over to Rockingham, which allowed plenty of time for him to get there park in front of the Rock, the uh, Rockingham gate, walk in the gate, and then be observed by the limo driver. The timing fits right down to almost to the minute. And the, the Bronco was parked abruptly on the curb, and Simpson admits that he parked it that way. He says yeah. he parked it that way. Yeah, well, then, of course, then, like you said earlier, then, then the sun comes up. We had a trail of blood, his blood, leading from the rear of the, of the Bronco through the gate, up the driveway, and right out into the house. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So now going forward, obviously, they're going to do this for 37 weeks. It's a 37-part series. What can we expect in the next few weeks? I mean, you know this trial, and I think as they are, as they are airing episodes now, you are still on the witness stand, I think. Uh, what can we expect going forward in the next few weeks? Well, I really don't know um, exactly what they're going to do, but, you know, they're only doing an hour for one week. And so there are a lot of things they're trying to highlight, obviously, the, the different things that are of great interest. And so you'll see uh, some of that. You'll, like, you'll see the glove demonstration, and you'll see some interaction between the attorneys. And, and there were a lot of sidebars. Of course, you're not going to see a lot of that type of stuff. But what I like is particularly is the interviews after. Now they're interviewing these people who were involved in testifying 25 years later. And that, you're going to see a lot of that, which, which is going to be kind of interesting uh, to see what people say now 25 years later after testifying all that time ago. Explain to me his reaction in the courtroom when they are showing the bruising on her face. They're playing the 911 call they are describing the assault versus all of the tears and the looking into the heavens when they show the dead body after the murders. It, it doesn't seem to equal out. One, on one hand, you would think there would be some sense of embarrassment or shame on his face. And on the other, it would be outrage. For me, it would be outrage if somebody yeah. accused me of doing something so horrible to someone I love. So yeah. I, you were in the courtroom. What, what's yeah. your perspective on that? Well, what you see is what he's always done, and that's acting. 
that's acting and uh, being a sociopath, you know, and sometimes if it uh, he feels it's the right time, he'll look up in the air with and shake his head, and other times he'll he'll feign uh, a shock. Uh, you know, someone like someone like that or that level of sociopathy doesn't get shocked too easily. And so it's just he's playing a game depending on you know what what's being said and how he thinks that people are going to want him to to react to it. But he's just uh, a sociopath at that level is also a psychopath. And someone who's just disassociated himself from reality, and, hey, I wasn't there, I didn't do it. It's hard for us to imagine that. But there are up to like 4% of the American public are sociopathic. doesn't mean they're all serial killers. It means that this is a disease, that there are people like this who can just disassociate themselves totally with reality and believe any other thing that they want. Again, when all else fails, you go with the evidence, you go with the blood evidence, and that will tell you all you need to know about who committed this crime. Well, it is, it's so fascinating. I'm excited about watching what Court TV does with this story and, and how they tell it. The first five episodes have been really good. It's, it's good, clean journalism, man. I, I, think, I, I think they stay away from sensationalizing anything. Is that your perspective, too? Well, yeah, I hope they do, and, and that's why I didn't want to do it initially, because that's what I was in fear of. But if yeah. this is straight out forward, then uh, uh, we'll, we'll get a long ways here to go. So we'll, we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt and then uh, see what happens, because they can edit these things. <laughs> the interview I did was nearly five hours long, so wow. there's all sorts of things that... They can stick in there and re-edit and, and omit. and uh, So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Listen, Furman pays you a compliment. He says Tom Lang is a guy who just goes and gets it done. I was like, wow, Furman paid you a compliment, man. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's, again, he's probably said a few other things to me. <laughs> Maybe they, they didn't, uh, didn't put in for a reason. I don't know. That's right. Detective Tom Lang, author of the book Evidence Dismissed. Tom is. Uh, we we've talked about some other things. We won't let the cat out of the bag about here, but right. uh, but I tell you what, man. As this goes on, would you come back and talk more about these? You got it, Clay. No problem. Hi, this is Mayor Sharon Weston Broom, inviting you to listen to the We BR podcast, an initiative of my Women's Advancement Commission. Our show will air the first and third Wednesday of each month. We invite you to listen to our podcast by visiting www.podcast225.com. That's www.podcast225.com and by subscribing through the Apple Podcast app. That's We Be Our Podcast. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. This is Podcast225.com and The Clay Young Show. Detective Lang is a really great guest because he knows how to tell a story and he's so great with the details. If you haven't checked out OJ25, I encourage you to do so. The show debuts on Court TV or it, it 
airs on CourtTV.com every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also get the show after the fact, as I said, online. Uh, all five episodes are currently up there in episode six. It may be up there now as you are hearing episode 231 of the Clay Young Show. So before I get to what I referenced in the open, I wanted to, to do a drive-by plug on something. I'm, uh, last week, as you remember, Tom Harrison was on the show talking about the 56th annual Governor's Prayer Breakfast for Louisiana. It's coming up on March 10th. There are still a few seats available. You can buy your tickets online at LAGPB. That's like Louisiana Governor's Prayer Breakfast. Uh, LAGPB.org. You can get your tickets there. An individual ticket is only 50 bucks. Get a great breakfast and hear from some amazing speakers. And got to let you know, Coach Orgeron is going to be speaking. He and his wife will be attending, and he will be speaking at this year's prayer breakfast. You'll have a chance to hear from Coach O. The guest speaker this year is Dr. Barry Black, who is the chaplain for the U.S. Senate and a retired Rear Admiral in the U.S. Navy. He's got a great number of accolades that you will hear about at the event. Uh, I mean, just a phenomenal person, phenomenal speaker, and he's going to be the keynote at this year's Governor's Prayer Breakfast. In fact, he was the keynote at the National Prayer Breakfast back in 2017. So he'll be here. Coach O will be here. The governor will say a few words. It's a great opportunity to, to see lawmakers from both sides of the aisle get together and actually talk about one thing uh, that they have in common or they say they have in common, and that is the well-being of the state of Louisiana. Now, listen, next week we're going to have John Cuvion, pollster John Cuvion will be on the show to talk about this recent Democratic debate and Super Tuesday that by the time you are hearing this may have already taken place. He's going to give you his perspective on that field of candidates that I think right now the front-running men or the front-running people are Mike Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg. I know you're going to say, well, that's not what the numbers say, Clay. Well, keep watching. Pete won Iowa, and Bloomberg is worth $62 billion. Excuse me, $61.9 billion to be exact. And he's spending his money right now raising his name profile Mayor Pete is on stage and and getting the attention of being level-headed. Of course, there's Joe Biden, (laughs) and that's just not working out. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who I I just, I don't don't think she'll end up as a nominee. And then there's Bernie Sanders. I just, uh, you know, but but Bernie Sanders is, I mean, he's got kids following him. It's it's pretty amazing to see that. But John Cuvion will be in studio talking about the field of Democrats who are trying to unseat President Trump. And uh, they've got a steep hill to climb to do that. And he'll give you his perspective on it. But Bloomberg's got a lot of money and he's spending it. And elections really do come down to work ethic, messaging and money. And I don't know how well Bloomberg's messaging will pan out. 
but he certainly has money and he clearly has a work ethic because I can't see a lazy person being worth $61.9 billion, just saying. But Kuvion will be one guest. The other guest will be James Toulier. James is the father of Nick Toulier. If you will remember, Nick was one of the officers shot in July of 2016. Of course, you remember three Baton Rouge police officers or Baton Rouge law enforcement officers, two Baton Rouge police, one East Baton Rouge Parish sheriff, all succumbed to gunshots, fired from someone who came into town to do nothing but carnage. Well, Nick was one of the other men shot because there were others shot as well. And he is currently in Houston. And his father has something he will share with you that I don't know that any of you will believe. And I don't mean that in terms of you think he's lying. I think you're going to be, your mouth will be agape over this. And you'll see it, or you'll hear it rather, when he is on the show next week. So stick around for that. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR, on Instagram, Clay underscore YoungBR, and just Clay Young on Facebook. Or you can just email me, Clay at podcast225.com. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you to Tom Lang, who did a phenomenal job as always. If you want to hear more about what, or, or get more about what Tom thinks about this trial and get more backing on more of the evidence you heard him talk about here today. Again, check out Evidence Dismissed. It's a good read, a good investment. 25 years later, you're going to learn things that you didn't know, that the media just flat out didn't tell you, or things the prosecution didn't think was important enough to bring into the trial. But you can check it out. Evidence Dismissed. Get that? Got it. Thanks for being with us. Catch you next time here on podcast225.com. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.